It's Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. I'm Brian Whitman with my friend, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. Hello, doctor. Hello, Brian. Here we are again. Here we are. And by the way, go and register, subscribe on iTunes. Give Dr. Stu five stars. Five stars for exceptional performance. Six. We can't even do six. You I guess do, you could add. You can't a, do six. I don't, Randy, you can't add a six star, can you? No, because that'd be five and then a one star. We don't want that. Yeah, I got the six to the five. Uh, five stars. Ten. Five, ten stars. Give them twelve stars and write a nice review too on iTunes and subscribe so you get, of course, uh, every one of Doctor Stu's podcasts. And really, the best way to help the show out is if uh, you like what you're listening here and you know people that are interested in this. Tell people about it. You tell people. And you know, one thing I found, Doctor Stu, um, I'm forty on the nose. 41 pretty soon, like in a couple of days. What you know, you know who likes to share information? Pregnant women love to share information with other pregnant women. And it, and, and non-pregnant women love to give comments to pregnant women, correct? Right, they do, right? <laughs> right, they do. Right? Unso- unsolicited advice is uh, the bane of our existence. Now, is there anything to it like uh, you know, oh, you're carrying like a boy. Oh, you're carrying like a girl. I mean, all of this stuff that pregnant women say, I, is, it, is, is that true? Do you carry like a boy? What does that mean? I, I have no idea. You know, we should do We should do it. That's a thing we should do a whole podcast on, on things like if you, you know, if you reach up for something on the top shelf, you'll strangle your baby. Uh, right, the, all of these I've kind of that one. old wives' tales, right. a lot of old midwives' tales. Yes, right. yes. <laughs> I don't you know. I don't know what it means carrying like a boy and carrying like a, a girl. I don't know. And and you know, some people will say if you have a dark line in the middle of your belly, it means one thing, and if it, if it isn't there, it means another thing. And and uh, you know, it it's uh, all variations of of things that are passed down. Mm. It's because people have an interest in pregnant women it's a natural attraction actually you can always tell somebody who is uh antisocial or psychotic uh mm. or has a sociopathic behavior because they don't enjoy looking at children or pregnant women yeah uh, right and so when somebody sees a pregnant woman and they they tend to want to participate in the joy and they make mm-hmm. comments some of which are valuable and some of which are, are quite idiotic. do you get a lot of rumors coming into your office like a lot of women coming to you asking you these things they hear just from a friend a relative and you would just yeah. have to debunk my sister-in-law of- told me yeah i mean uh i would say that i have a i have sort of an, a really intelligent group of of clients in my practice because they've sought out uh, alternatives and they've done a lot of research but yeah i mean i wrote a book uh with a couple of my colleagues and friends back in 2000 and uh, four, and then we wrote the second edition in 2010 called Fearless Pregnancy. And the motivating factor for us writing the book was that we thought we spent about 80 to 90% of our prenatal visits dispelling rumors that people had heard or making people reassure people that stuff they saw on TV or stuff, stuff their Aunt Betty told them <laughs> were, were not true. Well, you know what's amazing to me is, uh, is really the f- some female, some ladies, some women, they're, they are so beautiful i am thinking of a friend uh angie our friend at lone mart oh yeah randy and i our buddy jason's wife angie works over at lone mart and we're over there once a week she had a baby six weeks ago right yeah seven weeks ago seven weeks ago we saw her last week dr Stu, she looks like a million dollars like she just stepped off the cover of a magazine i mean she has Every her figure is there. I mean, she has gone back 
poof to what she was, I mean physically, before she was pregnant. She is one of the most hated hated women on the planet. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just want you to know that. Right now, all the women oh. listening like, I do not like her. I do yeah. not like her very but, much but, at and all. I, I, and I said to her, I said, wow, you look great. And I thought everybody's got to be saying it to her. And now we even need to send the podcast to her so she understands how great. She, I mean, but the, and then, and then, unfortunately, some women, it seems they struggle to get even sort of a little bit of their figure back. Correct. It's, it's uh, some of it is, is, uh, hard work on the part of the of the woman recovering and and who exercise the needs properly but most of it is genetic it is just a, it is the, the luck of the draw why do some women get varicose veins why do some women get stretch marks why do, why don't some women why do some women from behind they're not doesn't even look pregnant other women they, their butts get twice as wide uh it really is sort of a genetic predisposition uh and you can't fix that and uh, I think that most women accept that, that they understand that. Yeah. But it, it is it is it is difficult, and certainly they and are society, envious of, and society of is some so judgmental. Oh, and by the way, when you see some of these movie stars that that uh, look like a million bucks uh, two months after they've had a baby, it's because they spent a million bucks mm. to make themselves look like a million bucks. <laughs> exactly. Either right. with uh, you know with personal trainers or dietitians, nutritionists, they have somebody cooking their meals for them. It's it, it's not real life. Right. It's not real life. It's a great. They way probably to say also it. have someone raising the kid for them. Yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. Well, it reminds me. I, I don't want to. Well, yeah, I do. No, I guess, you do. Of I guess I want to pick on this Kim. Is your Car- podcast. I want to pick on it. Kim Kardashian a little bit. Absolutely, you do. I remember reading something in a blog uh, or on the internet about a quote from Kim Kardashian saying something to the effect that she can't. You know, she wanted to deliver her baby a month early because she wants to get her life back. And part of me just thought about this, and I, and I said to myself, I mean. Uh, putting her narcissism aside this is this is like you know i mean you have a kid now right your life will never be the same and if that's if you had a kid because it's a trophy then that's fine but you know your kid needs its mommy and it needs its daddy and it doesn't need to be raised by uh you know some nanny someplace it and you're not going to and, and the idea that you're going to get your life back is just it, it to me as a physician and as a dad and and as a as a human being i just hear that and i say Hey, that poor kid. Mm. Well, after poor, a birth, poor North, when, poor North. After a birth, Northwest, when is a mother yeah. medically able to go to start doing nightclub appearances again? The next day, a week after? Dep- she- it depends on the appearance fee. Right, yeah. I guess it does, right? <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting what you said, doctors. I mean, the, these little nuggets come out of doctors do all the time. Yeah, and I, and I love them. I like to uh, I like to hold up the little uh, gold nuggets and show them off to everybody. You said something so interesting. If you're going to have a baby... You sort of can't want the old life back because the old life is the old life. You have to sort of want a new life, a mommy's life, and or you a ask daddy's a new life. Parent, your life is over. Well, it's no, it's different. It cha- <laughs> Randy, it changes. No, right? it's better. It changes. It changes. Well, no, it's fantastic. It's amazing. But your own, you know, having to do free time whenever you want, do whatever you want. That's the, over. That stuff is over if you want to be. You know, a, a, a good parent. Well, no, is that fair? See, now I'm throwing a penalty flag. I, I think that's unfair to say that that your your time, your alone time, your you know your, your the autonomy to just go out and drink on a Thursday well, night. You, well, it's not going to okay, happen. Well, yeah, that, that's that, what, I thought that's what Randy's talking. I, about. I, well, I'm not that particular, like, and not the drinking, but your Randy time, your Brian time, right? That wouldn't have to be over if we became dads. I mean, well, uh, isn't it critical for for new parents, new moms, and new dads to make sure they carve out some some uh some some Mary time some Sarah yeah time. maybe maybe after the baby's about a year old but I'm saying in the first three to six months 
after the baby's born, the baby it needs to, especially if you're a breastfeeding mom, which I do support, uh, you should, you're going to need to be around to feed your baby every three to four hours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you grab sleep when you can. And it doesn't mean you can't still make love with your partner or your spouse, but, but you're not going to be, you can't be running off to the movies. Mm-hmm. You can't go away for the weekend uh, unless you bring your baby with you, which again, changes the thing. You can't go you know, take your uh, three-day weekend way. down to, to it, Dodger Stadium yeah. to go to a series. You and if you're, and if you're going to a movie, please don't bring bring your baby with no, you. No, do not. But Please uh, don't bring your kid into the movie theater, please. No, that's what you not want to do. Or worse, you know, like the people that bring their babies to music festivals at Coachella. But I have a friend who's a new mom. And no, really, they people bring their babies to Coachella. It's selfish. It's because they yeah. want to go and they don't want to pay for a babysitter or maybe they can't afford yeah. a babysitter. But I got a friend who's a new mom. She has a nine-month-old. This is the first time she was able to go out this weekend to go to the movies. You know, you don't really have your own life anymore. I mean, because you, you can... you got to worry about something that you created. Yeah. You can you can go out to the movies earlier than that, but then, you know, you're leaving your baby in someone else's care, and I think that it just really depends on who you are, and you know whether you're you're your friend who just went out after nine months or your Kim Kardashian. I mean, it's a two different approaches to motherhood, and I would prefer the former to the latter. Doctor Stu, uh, when when uh, when you vi- sorry, Kim. Yeah, yeah, Kim. All apologies. Actually, to Kim. I'm not. And so by the sorry way, to North. Yes, uh, that's right. And if Kim Kardashian wants to respond, it's ask at gmail dot com. <laughs> we'll check his virtual mailbag here in a little bit on Doctor Stu's podcast. When when you have couples come to you and they talk about literally, you know, a phrase thrown about is family planning. But literally, let's talk for a moment about family planning. Do you have a do you have a standard sort of that you share with women in terms of 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 how much time in between babies is ideal? I know someone who has had three babies, a one very premature. So I think she's had three babies inside two and a half years or inside. And wow. I mean, it's the really very close together. And there's something very nice about it. The babies seem to be very close. They seem to have really bonded with each other because they're literally babies at the same time. Do you give your uh, the women with whom you work clients, do you give them sort of a suggestion if you're going to plan out your family, give it 18 months in between, or is that sort of not if something If you're just you talking about vaginal birthing as opposed to after a cesarean section where a certain amount of time is valuable for, for wound healing, uh, no, I don't give advice about that because I'm not an expert on that sort of thing. I would refer them to their pediatrician uh, to talk about it. I've heard that somewhere between two to four, three years between kids is more oh. ideal than having three really close together like that. My parents couldn't wait Some people months. even say four years between kids. Um, four years? Yeah, that's what I, I've heard these things. But again, you probably heard the same sort of thing. I'm not in that loop, and I try not to give advice on things that I don't have any expertise right. in. And that's not one that I do... Except for medical reasons, right? And that would be like a post-surgical birth. You should wait. the The data states that if you get pregnant within six months of having a cesarean section, your risk of damage to your uterus or a ruptured yeah. uterus is higher. Between six and eighteen months, it's probably not significant, and beyond eighteen months, again, there's no significance. So for that reason, but as far as child rearing goes, it that's outside my. Uh, my nugget meter. Uh, okay. You see, I always wish that I was closer in age to my brother. My brother is two years and 10 months older than I am. And it was, uh, for example, when I went into high school, when I was a freshman, he was a senior. And it was like he wouldn't even acknowledge me in the hallways of the high school <laughs> because I was this lowly freshman and here he was a popular senior. I have it worse. I was a senior and my brother was a junior and he wouldn't acknowledge me. <laughs> 
See, but I would, I'm envious of that closeness. I'm envious, I, my brother and I uh, are close uh, in a lot of ways. We're not close in other ways. But I, I would say definitely because I have an Irish twin. My brother and I are 10 months apart. Get that one. Uh, we it. were super close as kids, uh, and we were pretty much inseparable, like we were twins up until probably, say, 10, 11, when he got too cool for me. Mm. Yeah, I think that, that if you're asking the question from the perspective of the children, mm. it's a different answer than if you're asking the question in perspective of the, of the parents. Yeah, right. Right. But right. when you are talking about family planning, I would assume one thing you do have advice on is, uh, you know, how old a woman would be when she's deciding to plan, I'm going to have this kid, this kid, this kid, you know. If someone comes to you and they're, you know, 37, 38, and they say, I'm going to have three kids over 10 years, you say, mm. Get cracking. Yeah. Yeah, it so, seems that, that now uh, having babies, pregnancy after 35 is a very common thing, whereas a generation ago, certainly two or three generations ago, pregnancies after 35... Well, if you were 35 and you didn't have uh, a few babies already, well, there was something wrong with you, right? Yeah. In, in, you know, 30, 50 years ago, being pregnant after 35 was still quite common, even going back 100 years. But it was people having their sixth and seventh baby by that point, uh, not their first baby. The delaying mm -hmm. the childbearing now until 35 or beyond 40. Again, I want to talk about this 35 number in a second because... Yeah. There's nothing magic about 35. Yeah, so explain. 35 isn't a real thing. I'll explain. No, it's not. I'll explain, there, where, there, there I'll explain was, where it comes there from. There was not a committee that got together and decided on the number and no, they decided no. the 35. All right, all right you're going you're gonna to pry it out of me now. Uh, the way, the Where 35 came from was 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, the risk of a miscarriage from amniocentesis was considered to be about 1 in 200 um, attempts. Okay. 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 The risk of Down syndrome at age 35 was one in 200. Mm. So when the risk of miscarriage equaled the risk of having a Down's baby, that's where they considered to be the time that insurance or whatever else should pay for amniocentesis. Oh. So this is where the thirty, the one in 35 came from. It has no basis in science. It doesn't mean that at 34 years and 11 months, suddenly your month later, you're more high risk than you were a month ago, or that at 36, you're any greater risk than at 35. It's an artificial number that has been adopted by organized medicine and by insurance companies as a uh, risk factor called advanced maternal age. Right. What a, what a horrible mm. name that that when a woman oh. comes in and she's told that she's th and she's thirty six years old and she's pregnant and she's told by her physician, oh, you're high risk. That's not going to add any stress to your pregnancy. No, not at all. And I mean, <laughs> it puts it in the same category as what having severe hypertension or triplets or something like that. And it's not in any way, shape, or form. And 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 by the way, the one in two hundred number is comparing apples to oranges. You're comparing the risk of miscarrying a normal baby to the risk of giving birth to an abnormal one. And they're two separate numbers. And every family was, is different. To some families having a Downs baby doesn't mean anything at all. They'd be delighted to have that baby. They don't, they don't care. Mm. So, uh, and, and, by, and right now, by the way, the risk of amniocentesis is far less than one in 200 because it's done under ultrasonic guidance now when it's done. And the one in 200 number came from when it used to be done by feel without mm. ultrasound. So there was a higher risk of hitting something and hurting something. But when we talk about age, and this is interesting, and uh, pregnancy after 35 is one issue, and, and I think the points you raise are obviously very valid, and how jarring, for lack of a better term, for a woman to go in and be told her pregnancy is high risk just straight out of the gate. I mean, what a scary thing. Uh, to take it a little bit further, admittedly a little bit further, a little, a little provocative here, there does become an age, I think, I think, there does become an age when having a baby 
can be irresponsible. I mean, I, uh, I, and not even I'm not even thinking so much right now about moms. I'm thinking of dads, for example, and it, whether it be um, Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, uh, if you father a child, and of course we talk a lot about mothers here on Doctor Stu's podcast because he cares for moms, literally. But if you're a, if you're a dad and and you're fathering a child and you're 75, that ain't fair to that kid. No, because when that kid graduates high school, that is not going to be around. And I always sort of use that as a barometer. You should plan to be around guys talking to guys. Now, if you're going to be involved in a pregnancy, if you're going to be a dad, you should plan mathematically to be around to at least the time the kid gets out of high school. So however you are old now, add 18 years to that. And if that's still under the average life expectancy, well, then I guess it's OK to father a kid. You know, it's it's an interesting, it's very hard to judge anybody on an individual basis. I mean, you know, we talked about Kim Kardashian and, and her narcissism of wanting to get her life back and that. And the same thing, too. I mean, somebody's 70 years old and having a kid because they want to have a legacy and they want to have uh, more uh, spawn, so to speak. Yeah, uh, that's the know. wrong reason. Right. It's not the right reason. It's a very narcissistic reason. It's a very self-centered reason. However, if they're married to someone who, say, is 30 years younger than them, who loves them dearly and wants a child by this person that's then you, then it's not for us to necessarily judge that that scenario as harshly as as it seems like we yeah, might be judging okay them. no and 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 maybe you don't but i do uh, because it's interesting you know i i just think that it's you know there is a lot of it there there is a lot of talk you know uh, uh, turn on the radio i and and certainly uh, you know, I know we all listen, and 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 uh, I have the privilege of doing a radio show. I hear a lot of talk uh, about you know uh, fatherless families and how detrimental it is, whether it's you know uh, having a child uh, out of wedlock or an unwed mom. But you know, this is at the other side of the spectrum. Uh, a fatherless kid is a fatherless kid. Whether the father is Tony Randall, who had the kid at eighty. Oh yeah, I meant Tony. Uh, we, I, said I Tony think Curtis. we said Tony Curtis. We meant my, Tony. My Tony apologies, Rand. the was, Curtis family. Yeah, right. Me too. I was thinking Tony Randall. Right. Uh, right. So. So, uh, you know, th that's a kid. Dad ain't going to be around. So, you know, whether, you know, uh, does it make oh, a difference? I, it's Tony Randall's. Kid? I, you know, I, I agree because it's not it. it, it a parenting is important regardless of socioeconomic class. And clearly, you know, the 70 year old guys that are having children are probably slightly better off than the than the 18 year old. Uh, inner city person who's having a child out of wedlock it's a it's a different scenario they've probably they're probably living in beverly hills or living in a in a nice house but i'm still saying for the same reason that you're saying that growing up without a mother or a father is a is a it's a ball and chain or a handicap to right off the bat and, and sets a kid a kid behind and you know that may sound old-fashioned and you know we may be getting some emails at uh you know, Ask Dr. Stu at gmail.com. Uh, to yell at us or uh, that sort of thing. But I, I, I look at, I'm, a, I'm from the Midwest. I'm a Minnesotan-born, uh, uh, raised there. And my parents were married for 59 years before my mother passed a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And my dad is now 93. And he misses her every day. Wow, your dad is 93. He'll be 93 in a couple of weeks. Wow. Yeah. And you know what's sad about that is he, he, he still plays golf. Except this year he's not playing golf. You know why? Oh. Because everybody he played with 
has, has passed, passed away. Oh, oh wow. Oh, oh, so, oh, God. so I'm going home in a couple weeks uh, gotta, for a family event, and I'm taking my dad out. We're going to play a par three. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. Isn't that fun? That's 93 fun. years old. Isn't wow. wow. God bless your dad. I didn't know that. Now, you mentioned askdrstu at gmail.com. We do have Dr. Stu's virtual mailbag. And if you have a question, Dr. Stu uh, will answer your questions online, and he might tell you you got to talk to your doctor about it. But, uh, but the more interesting questions we do talk about here on Dr. Stu's podcast, and uh, I plucked one out of the virtual mailbag. This is from Colleen in San Diego, and she writes, Hi, Dr. Stu. I love your new show. I've heard all of your shows, and I subscribe on iTunes. Uh, by the way, we can send her like Snooky's Cookies for that, subscribing on iTunes. We appreciate it. And she writes, I'm five months pregnant, and my boyfriend and I are talking a lot about having a home birth. I love my doctor. Every time I see her, I bring up the idea of a home birth. And she raises, uh, uh, I'm sorry, every time I see her and I bring up the idea of a home birth, she never has anything encouraging to say about it. I have to say that I agree with some of the concerns that she raises. I've done research on the benefits of being in the hospital when you have your baby. My question, Dr. Stu, is what about what happens after we have our baby? Will it be a challenge for me, first-time mom, 25 years old, my boyfriend is 25, will it be a challenge for us to deal with and cope with a brand-new baby three hours after we get home? I know myself, and I know that if we found we were not qualified to be our newborn's only guardian during the first day or two of life, I'd never forgive myself. I'm asking my boyfriend, my parents, my girlfriends nonstop, and I think I'm driving them crazy. You're a doctor. I know my questions won't make you crazy. Sincerely, Colleen in San Diego. That's interesting. Talk about home birthing. Uh, there is that, because uh, if you have your baby in the hospital, you go home with the baby, right? But uh, So I guess she, she suggests you have the home birth, and it's three hours later, and everybody's gone home, and here you have this brand new, and I mean brand new baby. Uh, how, how qualified are the clients that you work with to have that sort of immediate care for a newborn in the first hours of life? after the birth, after everybody's left. Well, in the, in the hospital, when you give birth in the hospital, you usually, vaginally, you usually stay a day or two. If you have a C-section, you stay two or three or possibly even four days. So yeah, you do have, uh, the babies will generally room in with you, but you do have a lactation consultant. You do have nursing that can come by and help out, those, those sorts of things. So it do gives you a little bit of a jump start, and then you go home. But of course, once you go home, right. It's the same as if you had just delivered at home and now you're three, four days out. Maybe you're a little bit, the routine is better. Maybe your milk has come in and so things are a little bit easier. As far as the difference between that and a home birth, well, first of all, a home birth prenatal care is completely different. And you're talking, during prenatal care, you're, you're, you're probably going to be hooked up with uh, prenatal education that talks about these things because uh, childbirth education for home birth is different than childbirth education for a hospital. A lot of hospital-based childbirth education prepares you to be a good patient. Whereas the childbirth education that, that I support and that, that places like the Sanctuary Birth and Family Wellness Center here in Los Angeles have prepare you to be um, uh, an independent uh, person and with you know understanding the process mm. as opposed just to how to how to deal with and cope with a hospital birth. It would certainly one, be intimidating though. It could be. Scary, and one of those right? things and one of those things is about breastfeeding and how to care for your baby. For people that feel uncertain about that, a lot of times they will have family members like their mothers will fly in or come and stay with them. Uh, we, there is such a thing as a postpartum doula, which I think we did talk about doulas last, uh, on the with last Sarah, show right. with Sarah. And I have uh, something to ask and you we about didn't, Sarah, And we didn't even get to the postpartum doula part. Right. I don't think we talked about that. But uh, you can hire a postpartum doula, 
and they can take shifts and they can come in and spend 12 hours in the house with you or you can get one that spends 12 hours and then another 12 hours so that you're not alone. Mm. And again, these things do cost a little bit of money. Uh, so that like how much like to have a postpartum doula you know uh, I I can't we should have asked Sarah that we should have asked her whatever it costs it doesn't cost the $30,000 that the stay at the hospital does no, home birthing. Home birthing is a lot yeah. less expensive than, than uh, any of the, whether it's a vaginal or a C-section. You know, even having a 12-hour doula, that's not a four-day stay in a hospital no, bed. No, no. But a lot of people don't care about the hospital costs because they say their insurance pays for it. And, and so this is something where it may or may not pay for that. But I'm getting off track. I want to get back to the fact that, that if you're nervous about those things, first of all, you'd be surprised how many women feel that they're nervous and then you know, within hours after birth, they know exactly what they're doing. And by the way, we don't... And that must be a wonderful feeling, by the way. Just when you get, when you glide into that moment where where the nerves go away and the fear goes away and it's you and your baby. Wow, that must be a beautiful moment for a new mom. It is. And and nature designs it that way. I mean, usually the uh, home birth team will stay in your house for anywhere from four to six hours after birth. We're not buzzing out within two hours. We do a newborn exam. We make sure the baby latches. Uh, we teach you positions and how to do that. Again, we have a special, almost every uh, birthing, home birthing uh, network has a lactation specialist that will generally follow up the next day, two to three days after birth, the, the birth team comes back to your house mm. to check on you. So you're not just left, uh, you know, standing at the curb going, bye-bye. Scared to death. <laughs> yeah, not right. Waving what to goodbye do. to the help, right? No. Yeah. And, and you look at women have been doing this since the dawn of time. Mm. And being nervous about it has been there since the dawn of time. Were there, lacta- when, were there lactation experts at the dawn of time? Uh, they didn't need them in the dawn. <laughs> they didn't need them, right? Yeah, you know, a baby cow doesn't need to know how. It doesn't have to have someone. It's, right, there's still instinct just does in there, it, right? Yeah. Just does. Just because right? we're humans and we're conscious doesn't mean there's also instinct in there. Well, you- it's interesting to watch a newborn baby sitting on a mother's chest because whether it's by smell or by feel or by something, those babies will seek out the nipple and they are, they have the automatic sucking reflex. Yeah, isn't that a natural instinct? It, 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 they will even crawl toward the breast. And they will find it, and, is, they, and is, they do. Is that and what you mean, Dr. Stu, when you say uh, that you stick around to see if the baby latches? What does that term mean? Correct. I mean, baby, you, when a baby takes a nipple into its mouth, there's a proper way to do that where uh, it, won't, <laughs> it won't hurt like hell. Right. And it won't cause nipples to crack or bleed. You want the baby to get the whole areola in the mouth. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't suck on the nipple. They suck on the, the brown part around the nipple. Right. And by, by squeezing that part, milk comes out the nipple. If you don't have a baby latch properly, it can lead to infections in the nipple and uh, Certainly dysfunctional, pain and pain dysfunctional for... breastfeeding and mothers wanting to quit and give up on that right. and that sort of thing. So, um, Isn't that interesting? You know, I have to ask you, uh, we had uh, on Dr. Stu's last podcast, Sarah was with us. She's a doula and she was very informative. But you know what, Dr. Stu, it's going to happen sometimes on this program. I'm going to get uncomfortable. It's just going to happen. It's going to get, it's going to happen. I know. Is, this, is this one of those moments? Uh, well, it's not now. I'm, I'm getting I'm, uncomfortable. No, no, I'm, yeah, because no, no. I'm looking at him right now and I'm like nervous. Really? No, You're please. starting to fits a little. No, no, don't be. Don't be. I want you guys to be totally comfortable. I was uncomfortable during the last show for a moment when Sarah was here. And I couldn't say it out loud because I didn't want to make her uncomfortable. And I have this whole neurotic thing going on where I don't want to tell her I'm uncomfortable. She might be uncomfortable. She said something, Dr. Stu, that threw me off. So can I ask you about yeah, it? Yeah, obviously this has been bugging you for some time now. So it has let's been Let's get it time. out there. Uh, I, I didn't think it really happened. Um, I guess it does happen. She referred to uh, consuming the placenta. <laughs> yeah. 
She did. Why does that gross you out? Well, all right, Randy. If you're Mr. Uh, Earth, uh, you know, you're Al Gore over here. Well, I Mr. think she Earth did, and the balance. She did say that. And I think yeah. she made a. She did say that. Like, I think she said like a lot of people do that. And yeah, the truth they, is a lot of people don't do that. Right. But I will explain to you yeah. about the, uh, the whole process. Yeah, because when she said it. I really, really felt weird. Well, very few people actually eat the placenta raw. Okay. Well, even you're saying it now, I feel weird. Is there a uh, placenta cooking book out there? I Actually, there is. <laughs> there, there we got to book the author. There we, is. We have to get the author for the, you know, the Rachel Ray of placenta. Cooking no, have with to placenta. Get <laughs> I will tell you that most of my clients never yeah, eat, eat the placenta. Okay. I would say about half of my clients... We'll have the placenta dehydrated and encapsulated mm. and take it like herbal. Like a doggy bag? Like a little No, they, they make it little into little capsules, and then you take them like you would any herbal, herbal placenta medicine. Pill. Okay, placenta let's, okay, pills. Okay, let's go back to the very beginning. The placenta is... The placenta is the, uh, is the tree of life for the baby. It's the mm. thing that connects the baby to the mother and is a miraculous organ. And the, the idea that we ha you have this blob of protein that filters waste products from the baby to yeah. the mother, bringing nutri nutrition and oxygen back to the baby. Yeah. The, the blood from the baby almost never mixes with the mother. It's this amazing exchange, like radiator exchange thing that goes on. And when the baby's out, within minutes to 30 minutes or whatever else, the uterus... Separate the placenta separates from the uterus and the body rejects it and it's over and, and, and it, it comes out. Purpose, it, it comes out and it comes out. It has no bones in it, but it's feels a little weird coming out because it's one more last burst after the, the woman thought she might. Yeah, be you think done. you're all done and then whammo, Doctor Stu. How big is it? I mean, the palm of my hand, maybe. Uh, uh, I would say that it's about uh, eight to ten inches in diameter. Okay, she ate that. Oh, I don't know. If she ate it all at once. Okay, right. So, so, so some maybe, people will take maybe a piece you make of it. Into a stew. Some people take a piece of it and they put it in a make a smoothie. Uh, Randy, it's doctors do. Uh, wait, so well, I'm sorry. Wait, so they make a smoothie. They, a make, they take a smoothie? chunk of it and they make a smoothie. Oh, that's L.A. That's an L.A. move. Uh, uh, placenta yeah, smoothie. Yeah, I'll put it I in mean, my that's, juicer. That's the West Side, right? I mean, that is West L.A. The well, placenta here's the theory smoothie. behind. Is the placenta gluten free? Oh, I. I if you have celiac disease, yeah, can you probably eat the placenta? Is, it probably is gluten free. <laughs> but it's it's. Um, Could you put it on pizza? You couldn't, right? Was, is that the way you would have it? You could put cheese on it, though. Could you really? Parmesan? That's the only way I think. I think I, that's in the cookbook. Yeah. I can't believe there's a placenta, placenta parmesan. Can I, can I get serious for just a second? You are a doctor. Because I'm always serious. Yes. And yeah, it's a good thing that you're on the show. Otherwise, the show would be rather boring. No, 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 no. Serious. No, I want you to be serious. He's put on his lab coat. Wow, that was impressive. He I said, am. can I be serious? And he actually put on a lab coat. That was odd. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I thought I should cover up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the theory behind the placenta, first of all, in nature, most... Uh, herbivore mammals that don't eat meat, they're, they're, they're herbivores, they still eat their placenta. And they probably eat their placenta for two reasons. One, it carries with it nutrition and iron and, and, and things to replenish the, the female after she's given birth. And two, they don't want to leave anything behind that would in, excite a predator or, in, or attract a predator. Oh, okay. All right. So they eat it to get rid of it. And, that, and, that, and that's sort of the na in wild. Humans, obviously, we don't need to do that. And sort of the, the whole idea behind uh, eating the placenta or getting placental capsules is that the placenta contains some hormones that, and, and some nutrients like proteins and iron and, and those things which help replenish the mother, mm -hmm. but also possibly help deal with things like postpartum depression, right. uh, help with lactation, maybe help bring milk in better so or keep the milk supply up. I, again, this is not in the medical literature, so right. I'm not an expert on this, 
but we'll have other people on the show and you can ask this question of them. But I understand your queasiness because the idea yeah. of taking this sort of Queasy's putting it lightly. Thing yeah, Queasy is putting it lightly. Fleshy, bloody, meaty, muscly thing. And, and just kind of... Taking a bite out of it? Yeah. I mean... It's pretty weird. Have you ever seen a woman eat the placenta? Uh, me personally, no. You've never witnessed that? No, and I would probably do what you did, and I would probably... Uh, right, maybe e- run. Excuse myself. Right, and- maybe just give the lab coat back and say, I'm out of this business. <laughs> no. I'd try a bite. <laughs> no, 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 I would just go in the other You'd room. You'd try and a bite, wouldn't you? Do right? my paperwork. Oh, yeah. I would go, I'm I would try that, paperwork. You see, where you're a doctor, you can just always go in the other room and do paperwork. With the right salts and spices, I feel like it, it might taste good. Right. And maybe it'll give me superpowers. See, this is it. That's it's the whole kind of oh, I'm gonna get something from this. That's you know, I just I, and Sarah's great. I want that I lo- super organ that separates the blood and puts in the nutrients. I it, want that in me. It's uh, do yeah. you really? Yeah. All right. He's just being Randy. Just I know. He's ignore, just ignore being him. Randy. Let's move on. But but, but you understand, Randy. right? I, I had to ask you, and I, I just had to ask you. I, I uh, you know, I couldn't ask Sarah. I couldn't do it. But when she comes back, now that we've gotten this out, you're a doctor, so you'll tell. No, her. No, but you know what, Sarah? If you're listening to this podcast, yeah, send us an email and answer Brian's question yeah. from your point of view. That and, would be great. We'll read it on the next. Yeah, podcast. And, and by the way, to, and and I really let's get the cookbook. Can we get the author of the of you know uh, you know yeah cooking with yeah I, I can find it. I can find it. And it is real, right? I mean, it's, yeah, I, uh, yeah, there is a cookbook out there. Okay. Right. It's just to me something just so otherworldly. I can't even begin right. well, to right. comprehend well, it. Well, so, fo- focus, Brian. Focus. focus. All right. Let's right. focus now on this pregnancy after 35. We touched on it briefly before. I know that it's a big deal for you, Dr. Stu. And I know that I, I you have talked in previous podcasts how in your practice you have seen uh, my term, for lack of a better term, sort of how the life cycle has changed for women in America. Because it used to be I talk about my mom and dad. My mom and dad were 22 when they had their brother. They were 25 when when they had me uh, 22 and 25 years old. Now you're not even considering having a baby in so many c- scenarios. Well, in some, in some cultures in our society, still having children at 20, 18, 20, 22 is still very common, right? It's just not sort of common in the West side of Los Angeles where you and I tend to, to hang out. Hang out. Those are where right. my people are. Yeah, you're right. I identify yeah. and with Staten Island and, and, Staten Island. and, and those uh, are my suburbs people. of Minneapolis. Correct. I identify. No, those are my peeps. The, the, it, it, but it's not common as common as it used to be because, you know, the feminist movement encouraged women to have careers and that if you just all you did was to have babies and become a mother, that you were a failure as a woman. And a lot of women bought into that. And there was advertising and there was the old commercial that, you know, you can have it all, baby. Mm. And the truth is you can't have it all. And I think sometimes women uh, who are very successful in their careers but delay childbearing uh, wish that they could do it over again and do it differently. Not yeah. everyone. Not everyone. Some people are blessed. But but as you get older, uh, the term the term for getting the possibility of getting pregnant in any given cycle is called fecundity. And your ability to conceive in any given cycle begins to drop in your early 30s. Even at your peak at age, say, 20 or 22, the chance of a, of a a human conceiving in any given cycle is only between 20 and 25 percent, mm. which means that if you have 100 college people having college women having sex unprotected in any given month, only 20 would get pregnant and 80 would not be pregnant. Wow. And that surprises people because they, you know, they think that, uh, you know, you're going to have unprotected sex in college, you're going to get pregnant and you really should be careful because it's, it's a but only 20% get pregnant in the second month, 20% of the remaining 80 or 16 more will get pregnant. Some college kids like those odds. Well, the guys do. Yeah. The women don't. And is it an interest? Yeah. But so what I'm saying is, but that begins to drop. And by the time you're 40, 
the chance of conceiving any given cycle is probably around 5%. So there's no fertility problem. It's just, it's just a natural human condition by the time you're 40. So delaying childbearing till, the, till that, besides the genetic stuff, which we'll talk about in a second, is the whole idea that the chance for fertility issues is so much greater, and that leads to anxiety and frustration and, and, and nervousness. Right, yeah. It's interesting to me how, talk for a moment ago, how Mother Nature sort of, uh, yeah, I, so I, I don't know what the age is now for a woman. There was this, uh, you know, my friend Curtis Lewa, founder of the Guardian Angels, fellow talk show host back in New York, there was a woman uh, in the news, you might remember her, she had twins and she was 60-something. That's his sister, and she had uh, it was some fertility treatments, and she had uh, you know very late in life, and and obviously, I, I, you know, a lot of people are inclined to think that, uh, you know, there becomes an age for you just obviously it's true. Just can't have kids. You just can't do it well, anymore. Well, let me ask you a question first. Would you judge her the same way you judged Tony Randall? Uh, yeah, actually, I think I would. I think that parents should plan to be around uh, for a significant, for all of their kids' childhood. I mean, chasing toddlers and stuff like that is not something a 70-year-old yeah. can be doing. Right, isn't that true? Right, that's right. true, right. Uh, right. As, far as, as far as her conception, obviously I don't know the specifics of that. I don't But I can, I can pretty much guarantee you they weren't her eggs. Okay, they were donor eggs. Right. Uh, by 60 years old, your ovaries aren't working anymore. Right. And even at 40, uh, if, you go, if you're having fertility problems, you go to an IVF specialist, they may do a couple blood tests to determine for lack of a better term, the fertilizability of your own eggs. And if you have numbers that are a little too high, they're going to recommend that you use donor egg uh, uh -huh. if you want to go and get pregnant because, you know, it's cost a lot of money to do an IVF cycle and they don't, and an honest uh, broker who's a infertility specialist doesn't want to just waste your money on, on, on eggs that are, for lack of a better term, poorly fertilizable. Yeah. And I'm sure the 60 year old woman what they weren't her eggs and, the they, other... and they prepared and obviously was pro she was postmenopausal so they had to prepare her uterus with hormones and all this whole thing so on the other that. side are there a lot of guys still donating sperm is that still happening a lot Oh, I'm sure, yeah. yeah there are sperm is. banks all over the country. Right. Uh, I, I've always been intrigued by the mindset of a man who anonymously will donate sperm. It's interesting. I mean, well, I make money for that, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, for, I, it's for college kids to make money. How much do you think you can make for a little sperm? You know, I don't know what the going rate is for that. I would probably bet it's like 50 bucks. Uh, Randy, 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 please get back here. Randy, Randy. He's, got, he's, he's gone. He he's gone. <laughs> wow. All right, yeah. he's gone. Okay. So well, we don't. You know, we're not, no, we'll we're not, we don't pay We don't pay him much on the Doctor Stu podcast. Yeah, you know, so. we'll, we'll wrap it up without him. But it, it's magnificent. I mean, uh, it, it, to me, I mean, really, uh, just for the money. I mean, unbelievable. I would have this guilt that there's a little Brian out there. I'd never meet him. You know what I mean? It's so weird. It's so weird. And then on the flip side, the guys with the vasectomies. I work with a guy at the radio station who had a vasectomy, and he's sort of like proud about it. He's sort of like, yeah, my wife really wanted me to have a vasectomy. Came in. I, it's Nobody at this current radio station, but a previous one. Oh, today's the day. It was like this build-up, Doctor Stu. Tomorrow's the day. Tomorrow, the day has arrived. And he goes in there and he gives me the play-by-play -play of the vasectomy and the whole thing. And he's just did it to make his wife happy. I mean, he literally was denatted just to make his wife well, happy. Well, but you know what? I have to give I have to give him credit because it's a self-confident man who can have a vasectomy. Most men who are insecure or not confident will will refuse to do that because. They're never sure that this is the last time. Right, 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 you know, right, right. You know, they, they may find another woman and they may dump their wife and find somebody else. And so they don't want to do that. And, uh, you know, this is a self-confident guy. You should give the guy more kudos than 
than you're giving him, Bray. Um, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, you're right. I, I don't want to be harsh. But but there is that sort of unavoidable... Uh, I think it makes you nervous. Yeah, it makes me nervous. Well, right. and, and, of course, the increasing age, too. Anybody at an advanced age becoming a parent it's like the 35 pregnancy at 35 it it's it just yeah but this yeah again i want to get back to that because the whole point that i wanted to make today was that the 35 thing is sort of an artificial uh uh, mark that that is really not really relevant to today's uh, obstetrical practice and yet it's still used often as a wedge or a hammer by modern obstetrics sometimes to get women to do things that they don't necessarily need to do like i've been told many times by clients that when they were pregnant at 35 or 36 years old their doctor said that we're not going to let you go overdue or we're going to we're going to need to do more testing on your baby toward the end of pregnancy because there's more likelihood that your baby will have growth restriction or some other problem in utero or the placenta will malfunction. Now, you know, that's true when you get up to be 43, 44, 45 years old. But that's different from 35. But that's different than 35, and yet 35 is where the definition of high risk and advanced maternal age comes in and starts to freak people out. Clearly, when you get in your in your 40s, there is a slight increased risk of gestational diabetes and preeclampsia and growth restriction and preterm labor and genetic defects. Of course, we didn't even talk about that as, as you get older, I guess I did talk about it briefly, right. that there, you know, genetic screening and stuff is important. But genetic screening is something that nowadays has become so prevalent because you can do it on blood tests on the mother. There's no, there's no need as a screening to do invasive testing like amniocentesis or CVS anymore because you have blood tests that can tell you whether your baby has Down syndrome or what the sex of your baby is. And uh, these are fantastic tests. They have about a 99.7% accuracy. So... My whole point, is, as it is with Dr. Stu's podcast, is to sometimes reassure people and make sure they ask questions of their physician when their physician starts telling them that they're 36 or 37 years old and they don't want them to go overdue or they start talking induction at 40 weeks in two days mm. or they tell you that, that they want to start doing NSTs or non-stress tests or fetal surveillance on your baby at 38 weeks uh, because there's something that could go wrong. These things are not that common. And as always, you have the right of inf- of true informed consent and refusal. Mm. And don't take this idea of high risk to fall in the same category as serious high risk issues, as we discussed before, like triplets or chronic mm. hypertension or insulin requiring diabetes, which are are definitely risk factors that that require much more attention. Should not be delivered it in a home environment. Uh, doesn't mean you can't have. Uh, a natural type birthing situation in the hospital, but that you need to have the facilities that a hospital can offer uh, in those situations. That's very interesting. But you you talk about that age. What a recipe for a high risk pregnancy, high stress pregnancy, I should say, throughout. I mean, you walk in and they say, "Oh, you're high risk," right, right, right off the well, bat. Well, even I mean, even all the know. textbooks and stuff still have this listed at age 35. And again, it stems from this really ridiculous thing where the risk of amniocentesis was the risk of uh, of a Down's baby, yeah. which has no relevance today. And it it's just one of those things that won't be dropped until people start asking questions. That's very 
interesting. And of course, Dr. Stu, if you want to ask Dr. Stu, you can always go and email Dr. Stu at askdrstu at gmail.com. And of course, check out the website there, drstuspodcast.com. I want to apologize for Randy, by the way, for him you know, running out of here. I mean, he says $50 for a sperm <laughs> donation. So I'm going to try to hit the buttons here. Well, but, yeah. I, actually, I was, I was wrong, Brian. I think it was about $50 when I, when I was in medical school. Oh. I think it's more like about 75 or 100 now. Well, hold on. Oh, crap. Now we've lost Brian, too. So anyway, this has been uh, Dr. Sue's podcast at uh, drstuespodcast.com. And you can uh, email me at uh, askdrstu at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. Again, for Brian Whitman and the absent uh, Randy Wang, this is uh, Stuart Fishbein signing off. Thank you.